2: Hi, everyone. Thanks for downloading Episode 70 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. Many of y'all are no doubt aware that today the Outer Banks of North Carolina is a popular vacation destination. If you pull up the website, visit ob.com, it says, The Outer Banks is a collection of barrier islands stretching over 100 miles along the coast of North Carolina. If you have visited the Outer Banks during the summer season, then you're well aware that it is a hot vacation spot and has been for decades. With miles of sandy beaches and loads of offshore fun, the Outer Banks offers a wide variety of outdoor activities that are well-suited for everyone. The Outer Banks is the perfect destination for a family beach vacation and an ideal place to unwind and relax.
2: Well, back in 1861, at the start of the Civil War, The Outer Banks was not a popular vacation spot, and yet early in the war, that coastal area of North Carolina was the focus of certain people's attention, but because of military concerns rather than for recreational reasons. And so what we're going to do in this show is revisit a topic we first talked about back in episode number 39, the blockade, and today we're going to talk about the blockade board and privateers. And Benjamin Butler even turns up again, as we'll look at a federal task force's invasion of Hatteras Island in August of 1861.
0: As y'all will recall, back in episode number 39, Rich and I talked about how in April 1861, President Lincoln declared the ports of the seceded states under blockade. That crucial action was one of the first strategic decisions made by the Lincoln administration. In fact, as we'll see throughout the course of the podcast, the blockade of southern ports by the U.S. Navy was a key element of Union strategy that was pursued throughout the entire course of the war. As the war progressed, the blockade grew in strength and evolved in purpose. From its beginnings as a deterrent to privateers, it grew into an increasingly efficient cordon that weakened an already strained southern economy.
2: The U.S. Navy's primary task throughout the Civil War was the blockade, but at the start of the war, the Navy was woefully unprepared to tackle that assignment. It's a commonly held belief that in April 1861, the U.S. Navy was dramatically ill-equipped for war. However, that's only partly true. You see, before the Civil War, the Navy had been modernizing and equipping itself to face a foreign foe, so in April 1861, the service was in no way obsolete or unprepared to take on a far-off enemy. But at the outbreak of the Civil War, the U.S. Navy was unprepared and ill-equipped to contend with a domestic insurrection.
0: In April 1861, Lincoln's Navy had just a dozen warships in American waters, five of them sailing vessels that could perhaps catch other sailing ships trying to evade the blockade or operating as privateers, but of little use against steam-powered ships. Twenty-six other warships, 17 of them steam-powered, were scattered around the globe from the Mediterranean Sea to the coast of Africa and China. Of the Navy's new steam frigates and thirteen new steam sloops constructed since 1855 in a major Navy buildup, only two of the sloops and none of the frigates were operational in home waters. In fact, five of the six frigates were laid up in Navy yards for repairs.
2: With just the handful of vessels available then, it appeared to be a near impossibility that the U.S. Navy would be able to shut down the more than 3,500 miles of coastline stretching from Virginia to Texas, which had, by one account, 189 harbors, inlets, and navigable river mouths, But actually, those numbers are deceiving, since the Navy wouldn't need to assert complete control over all 3,500 miles of southern coastline or station a squadron of warships to guard the entrance to each of those 189 harbors and inlets. Instead, the Navy would just need to concentrate its efforts on blockading the 10 or so southern seaports that had rail or water connections with the Confederate interior. Those ports were Norfolk, Virginia, New Bern and Wilmington in North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, Savannah, Georgia, Fernandina, Jacksonville, and Pensacola in Florida, Mobile, Alabama, and New Orleans, Louisiana. Those locations would become the focus of the federal effort to isolate the Confederacy. But even establishing a blockade of just those key ports meant that the Navy needed to be dramatically expanded from its pre-war strength, and this would have to be done at the same time the Union was attempting to raise an army of unprecedented size.
0: Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, committed the Navy to a double-barreled program of purposeful shipbuilding for a lengthy struggle, and for the short term, a scramble to acquire stopgap vessels of any kind that could be converted into naval ships to send out and establish the blockade. Wells was formerly a Connecticut newspaper editor whose full brown wig often perched cockeyed atop his head contrasted sharply with his flowing white beard. Wells knew little of ships or naval strategy when Lincoln selected him to head the Navy, although he had served as the Navy's chief of the Bureau of Provisions and Clothing in the administration of James Polk. Abraham Lincoln really just chose Wells to give New England representation in his cabinet. However, with the outbreak of war, Gideon Wells quickly showed impressive administrative talent and demonstrated a total dedication to the Union's pursuit of victory. He would become one of Lincoln's closest advisors, and the President would affectionately dub him Father Neptune.
2: Wells would be ably assisted by Gustavus Fox, who you guys may remember from our Fort Sumter story arc. Fox, the son of a Massachusetts physician, joined the Navy as a midshipman in 1838 at the age of 16. He served during the Mexican War, but then became discouraged by the slow pace of promotion in the peacetime Navy, and, like many other talented young officers, resigned his commission to enter private business. But then, through a family connection to Montgomery Blair, Lincoln's postmaster general, Fox came to the President's attention in early 1861, just in time to conceive the abortive effort to relieve Fort Sumter in April. Even though that expedition failed, Fox's enthusiasm and ability led Lincoln to appoint him to the new post of Assistant Secretary of the Navy in August 1861.
0: In that first goal for the Navy, that of purposefully expanding the service to engage in a lengthy struggle with the Confederacy, Wells and Fox were successful. The Navy would increase its annual expenditures tenfold by the end of the war, and the wartime Navy would eventually boast 670 ships, 8,700 officers, and 51,500 seamen. And they were also largely successful in that second goal, that of scrambling in the short term to acquire stopgap vessels of any kind that could be converted into naval ships to send out and establish the blockade. Building new ships would take time, time the Union didn't have when it came to establishing the blockade. So in the early days of the war, Gideon Wells organized a massive effort to collect ships for blockade duty. To lead the ship-buying program, Wells sent his brother-in-law, Charles Morgan, to ports throughout the North to lease or purchase just about anything big enough to be armed and sound enough to head south. Cargo ships, ferry boats, yachts, tugboats, All were bought or chartered by the U.S. Navy and turned over to shipyards for quick modifications.
2: Even as that motley fleet of refitted and armed vessels joined the existing Navy ships on station off southern ports, plans were being drafted and bids let for new ships to be built expressly for blockade duty. In an impressive display of the Norse industrial might, the first of those vessels, the steam sloop Tuscarora, was launched at Philadelphia on August 22, 1861. In quick succession, there came 23 steam-powered gunboats, each displacing 600 tons, armed with four to seven guns, and designed with shallow drafts to enable them to work close inshore. From keel laying to commissioning, each was completed in about three months, and so they were popularly known as 90-day gunboats. Thanks to the efforts of Wells and Fox, the number of vessels available for blockade duty slowly increased. The return of Navy ships from overseas and the activation of vessels laid up for repairs helped, as did the addition of the new 90-day gunboats. And then there were the civilian vessels purchased or leased and converted to wartime use. All told, by the end of 1861, the Navy boasted some 260 warships and commission, half of them hastily converted civilian vessels, and blockaders were stationed off most of the South's harbors, from Galveston, Texas, to Hampton Roads, Virginia.
0: As Abraham Lincoln found out after his April proclamation declaring a blockade of the rebellious southern states, Announcing a blockade and making it effective were two different things. Responsibility for the Union Navy's blockade strategy would ultimately rest with the committee that Gideon Wells formed in June 1861. That committee, known as the Blockade Board, was tasked with studying the conduct of the blockade and devising ways to improve its efficiency. In his book, The Grand Design, Strategy in the U.S. Civil War, Donald Stoker says, quote, the Blockade Board was one of the few Civil War institutions to thoroughly study a problem and offer sound advice. It also provided the framework for how the Union Navy would first institute and then conduct its blockade. In three months, beginning in late June 1861, it developed a strategic concept the Navy would use throughout the war to implement the blockade. End quote.
2: The Blockade Board had four members. Captain Samuel Francis DuPont, a professional naval officer, was to chair the committee. DuPont was a kind of American aristocrat. His father and uncle were not only extremely wealthy, but well-connected politically. Those connections made it possible for the young DuPont to win an appointment as a midshipman at the age of 11. So when the Civil War broke out, although he was not yet 60 years old, DuPont still had nearly half a century of naval experience under his belt. As for the other three members of the board, Superintendent Alexander Bache of the U.S. Coast Survey provided hydrographic and topographic information on the southern coastline. Major John A. Barnard was an Army engineer, and he supplied expertise on coastal fortifications. And then Commander Charles H. Davis was the board's secretary. The Blockade Board would work long hours preparing six reports, but its proposals essentially boiled down to two key suggestions, the construction and deployment of separate squadrons of vessels with designated areas of responsibility, and then the seizure of southern ports to use as logistical bases for those squadrons so that the ships could spend more time on station.
0: The Board's reports recommended the establishment of separate squadrons of naval vessels that would cover the Gulf of Mexico and Atlantic coasts. Gideon Wells accepted the proposal and eventually those two areas of operations would be subdivided into the East and West Gulf squadrons and the North and South Atlantic squadrons. The Board also asserted that only steam-powered ships could function effectively on blockade duty. Sailing ships, for all their deep-water, blue sea capability, sailing ships could not maneuver safely close inshore, holding their positions in all tides and weathers, or pursue steam-powered blockade runners. And so, although a small number of sailing vessels did serve on blockade duty, all but that handful of the blockaders were steamships.
2: But having steam-powered ships on blockading duty imposed another difficulty— since those vessels not only needed provisions, as did all ships, but steamers required regular maintenance of their machinery and fuel to feed their boilers. And the problem at the start of the Civil War was that the Union Navy lacked maintenance facilities, or coaling stations, anywhere between Hampton Roads, Virginia, and Key West, Florida. So the blockading ships would have to waste a large amount of time in transit between their stations of patrol and bases where they could perform repairs, obtain provisions, and take on coal. The time that ships spent steaming between their stations and such distant bases cut down on the time available for executing their mission, which was to blockade the southern ports. And so one of the blockade board's most important suggestions was to seize and hold several key spots along the southern coastline that could be used as logistical bases for the blockading squadrons. Doing so would significantly increase the time the ships could spend on station, maintaining the blockade.
0: To provide the Navy with advanced supply bases, the Board advocated the seizure of Fernandina and Port Royal along the Atlantic coast, and also the taking of Ship Island, located on the Gulf Coast, halfway between Mobile and New Orleans. But in late August 1861, the first military operation conducted on the Blockade Board's advice was actually the descent upon Hatteras Inlet on North Carolina's Outer Banks. Rather than provide a supply base for the blockaders, this joint Army-Navy operation was designed to eliminate the threat posed by the Confederate privateers who were sallying forth from the Outer Banks and preying upon Northern commercial shipping.
1: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Like Gideon Wells, his opposite number, Confederate Secretary of the Navy Stephen Mallory, had been appointed largely to give his state, Florida, representation in the cabinet. Mallory, however, was more familiar than Wells with naval matters. As a U.S. Senator, Mallory had been chairman of the Naval Affairs Committee and so probably knew more about nautical matters than any other Southern politician. But Mallory faced a dawning task in building a navy for the new Southern Slaveholding Republic. At the start of the Civil War, the Confederate navy was really little more than a figure of speech. It had only a handful of revenue cutters seized from federal port authorities in the seceding southern states. To buy time to build a genuine navy and to hit the north in one of its most vulnerable spots, its enormous merchant fleet, Jefferson Davis published an announcement just four days after Fort Sumter surrendered, inviting southern shipowners to apply for Confederate letters of marque. As we said back in episode number 39, those licenses, like those issued by warring nations in the past, authorized the bearers to turn privateer and, acting as naval vessels, capture Union merchant ships to sell for their own profit as contraband of war. The Confederate government also pledged to pay the privateers 20% of the value of any federal warship they destroyed.
0: It was just two days after Davis' announcement that Abraham Lincoln proclaimed a naval blockade of the rebellious southern states.
2: Exactly. And we'll tackle the topic of blockade running in another episode sometime, but for now we want to focus on the Confederate privateers because they were the ones, in the early days of the war, who were pressing the South's naval offensive. Within days of Jefferson Davis' announcement offering letters of mark, Southern entrepreneurs were forming syndicates to underwrite the cost of arming and manning whatever vessels could be found and sent out against Union merchantmen. By May 6, 1861, when the Confederate Congress ratified Davis's privateering proclamation, More than 3,000 applications had been submitted to state and Confederate authorities.
0: Before long, privateers in growing numbers were operating out of Hatteras Inlet. Privateers from other Confederate states were drawn to North Carolina by, by Hatteras Inlet's reputation as the handiest and most secure place on the eastern seaboard from which to prey on northern shipping. As William Trotter explains in his book, Ironclads and Columbiads, The Civil War in North Carolina, The Coast, quote, Nature seemed almost to have designed the North Carolina coast with privateering in mind. Along the entire east coast, Cape Hatteras is the easternmost jet of land into the Atlantic. In 1860, most of North America's coastal shipping skirted the treacherous Cape Hatteras shoals within sight of the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. So, too, did a significant portion of the lucrative commerce with the West Indies. As the German U-boats were to find in World War II, there was no shortage of targets off the North Carolina coast.
2: The privateers who operated out of Hatteras Inlet during that first summer of the Civil War found easy pickings. Hatteras Inlet was the main break in North Carolina's outer banks, and privateers would dart out through the inlet to snatch prizes off Cape Hatteras, and then retreat into the sounds to escape pursuing Federal warships. Those warships were kept at bay by two Confederate earthwork forts on Hatteras Island that guarded the narrow channel inside the shallow bar. On August 9th, six of the largest maritime insurance companies in the United States addressed a joint petition to Gideon Wells Demanding that the Secretary of the Navy take action to clean out the Confederate privateers operating out of Hatteras Inlet. One day later, a report reached Wells from a frustrated naval officer serving on the USS Cumberland. The report stated, quote, It seems that the coast of Carolina is infested with a nest of privateers that have thus far escaped capture and, in the ingenious method of their cruising, are probably likely to avoid the clutches of our cruisers. Hatteras Inlet, a little south of Cape Hatteras Light, seems their principal rendezvous. Here they have a fortification that protects them from assault. A lookout in the lighthouse proclaims the coast clear and a merchantman in sight. They dash out and are back again in a day with their prize. So long as those remain, it will be impossible to entirely prevent their depredations, for they do not venture out when men of war are in sight. And in the bad weather of the coming season, cruisers cannot always keep their stations off these inlets without great risk of going ashore."
0: As the Confederate privateers operating out of Hatteras Inlet in the summer of 1861 boldly snatched merchantmen sailing along the North Carolina coast, there was increasing pressure on Gideon Wells and the Navy to protect northern shipping interest. In addition, as a military consideration, Hatteras Inlet, as the sole deep water passage between the Atlantic Ocean and Pamlico Sound, Hatteras Inlet was a strategic asset to whichever side could control the region. And so it's really not surprising that one of the blockade board's first proposals was a plan to end the privateer problem at Hatteras. The last prize taken by the Hatteras privateers was a coastal steamer taken on August 20, 1861. Exactly one week later, the ships of the Federal Task Force were spotted by the lookouts in Cape Hatteras light.
2: The original intention of the blockade board was to capture the two Confederate forts guarding Hatteras Inlet, destroy them, and then seal the entrances to the sounds by sinking old ships loaded with stone in the channels. In July, twenty schooners that once hauled coal, cotton, and wood were filled with stone and then towed from Baltimore to Hampton Roads, Virginia. But at that point, Commodore Silas Stringham, commanding the Atlantic Blockading Squadron, decided the scheme was a waste of time and effort, so he scuttled the plan to take the so-called Stone Fleet to North Carolina. But still, the Army-Navy operation to capture and destroy the two enemy forts guarding Hatteras Inlet would go forward.
0: The Army component of the Joint Task Force would be led by Major General Benjamin Butler. At the time, Butler was anxious to win a victory and redeem himself after having been recently relieved of his command at Fort Monroe, so the ambitious political general felt the Hatteras Expedition was made to order for him. Butler's force would consist primarily of soldiers from two infantry regiments, the Ninth New York and 20th New York, plus a company of the 2nd United States Artillery. All told, Butler had about 900 men. The naval force assigned to the expedition was under the command of Commodore Stringham. It consisted of seven warships, mounting a total of 143 guns. In addition, two chartered vessels would serve as transports for the Army troops. The small task force departed from Hampton Roads on Monday, August 26th. At 9.30 the next morning, Cape Hatteras light was sighted, and that afternoon the ships anchored off the entrance to Hatteras Inlet.
2: The two Confederate forts guarding the inlet, Fort Hatteras and Fort Clark, were garrisoned by just 350 men of the 7th North Carolina under the command of Colonel William F. Martin. Fort Hatteras was a square redoubt mounting a dozen smoothbore cannon, mostly old 32-pounders. Five more guns, including a 10-inch Columbiad, weren't mounted in time for the battle. The smaller, Fort Clark, mounted only five guns. The ramparts of both forts were mostly sand backed by wooden barricades. None of the defenders' cannon had the range or accuracy to match the Dahlgren guns on the Wabash and the Minnesota, the two largest Union warships, which fired shot and shells weighing from 68 to 120 pounds. Despite the limited Confederate threat, the beginning of the Federal attack bordered on disaster. At a quarter to seven on the morning of Wednesday, August twenty-eighth, the transports began landing Butler's soldiers two miles up the beach from the enemy forts. The Navy, busy making preparations to begin its own bombardment of the forts, couldn't provide enough experienced seamen to handle the boats taking 318 men of the 20th New York to shore, and so one after another of the clumsily handled small boats were tossed about by the waves and swamped or broken apart in high surf. The thoroughly soaked Union soldiers managed to struggle ashore without loss of life or serious injury, but with ruined ammunition and no supplies.
0: Meanwhile, Commodore Stringham's bombardment, which opened at 10 a.m., enjoyed greater success. Having commanded the Navy's Mediterranean Squadron in the 1850s, Stringham knew of recent innovations in naval tactics for the reduction of shore fortifications. Tactics developed during the Crimean War. And so instead of the standard method of firing from an anchored position, Stringham ordered his steam-powered warships to cruise in a circle. They would shell the Confederate forts on the inshore leg of the circle and reload the guns on the outward leg. The firing circle would permit the Union ships to pound the enemy installations constantly while presenting a moving target to Confederate gunners in the forts. All but one of Stringham's ships were steamers, but the sailing frigate USS Cumberland, with its 22 9-inch Dahlgrens, was towed into action by the Wabash. And then even the USS Susquehanna, which passed by while returning from the West Indies, joined in the bombardment.
2: Concentrating their fire on Fort Clark, the Federal warships demolished the smaller fortification, and the men of its garrison evacuated it and made their way over to Fort Hatteras. Soldiers from the 20th New York occupied Fort Clark without firing a shot. At sea, observing the Confederate defenders fleeing from Fort Clark and not seeing a flag flying from either fort, Stringham ordered the fleet to cease fire and ordered the Monticello to enter the channel and take possession of Fort Hatteras. But when the ship got within range of the still defiant fort's guns, the Confederates opened fire and struck the Monticello several times before she was able to get away. Stringham then ordered the fleet to resume firing on Fort Hatteras, but in the confusion some of the ships also shelled Fort Clark where the soldiers from the 20th New York braved the friendly fire for a while, but then abandoned their newly won prize. Finally, about 6.15 p.m., darkness and worsening weather halted the Navy's bombardment.
0: The 300 or so men of the 20th New York spent a tense night marooned ashore, the small force completely at the mercy of the Confederates on Hatteras. But much to the stranded Union soldiers' surprise, the enemy didn't attack them, despite the fact that some rebel vessels landed reinforcements on the island during the night. Those reinforcements were put ashore by Commodore Samuel Barron, chief of the Confederate Coastal Defenses in Virginia and North Carolina. In fact, Barron accompanied the reinforcements ashore and took over command of Fort Hatteras.
2: At 8 o'clock the next morning, August 29th, the naval bombardment resumed, In Fort Hatteras, plunging enemy shells dismounted cannon, and most of the defenders simply sought whatever shelter they could from the incessant gunfire. And then an exploding shell started a fire in a room next to the main magazine. And with that, after about three hours of bombardment, Barron ordered a white flag to be shown. Benjamin Butler, aboard the tug Fanny, sent an aide ashore in a small boat to accept the Confederate surrender. But Barron refused to capitulate to the army, whose troops had done virtually nothing, and Barron declared that he would only, quote, "...surrender to the men who had whipped him," end quote. And so he was taken out to the Minnesota, Stringham's flagship, where he presented his sword to the victorious naval officer.
0: 700 Confederates became prisoners, including Commodore Barron, who was exchanged 11 months later. After seizing the two enemy forts on Hatteras Island, Butler's orders were to destroy them and then return to Virginia, but he and Stringham decided instead to hold the island by leaving four of the warships and most of the troops there. The War Department and Gideon Wells upheld the decision made by the commanders on the spot, and so the Union now had a foothold on the coast of North Carolina. James McPherson, in his book, War on the Waters, the Union and Confederate Navies, 1861-1865, to writes that the Union victory at Hatteras Island, quote, had important consequences. It gave a much-needed boost to northern morale after the defeats at Bull Run and Wilson's Creek. It helped shut down Confederate privateering. In the two weeks after the capture of Fort Hatteras, Navy ships seized six blockade runners approaching the inlet, whose captains had not learned that it was in Yankee hands. The Union Army was not yet prepared to follow up this naval success, but the achievement laid the groundwork for a campaign under General Ambrose E. Burnside that gained control of much of the North Carolina coast in early 1862, end quote.
2: Besides giving the Union an important toehold on the North Carolina coast, which we'll see the Burnside expedition will exploit in 1862— The successful naval bombardment against the enemy forts on Hatteras Island in August of 1861 also had a far-reaching impact on future operations against Confederate coastal fortifications. It had been a long-held military truism, confirmed by experience, that ships cannot defeat forts. Forts offered a steady gun platform, while sailing ships, susceptible to wind and current, had to anchor to achieve that same stability but anchoring within range of a fort's guns simply provided the defenders with a stationary target. Also, the wooden hulls of ships were likely to be more vulnerable to gunfire than the masonry or earthen ramparts of forts, and a few well-placed shots could knock a ship out of a fight, while the guns of a fort had to be overcome one by one. But at Hatteras, Stringham had upset conventional wisdom, by showing that the old rule about forts superiority over ships could be nullified by steam engines and modern naval guns. Stringham's success at Hatteras provided a dress rehearsal for future naval operations against more important targets.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Civil War in Coastal North Carolina by John S. Carbone.
2: The Civil War in Coastal North Carolina is really a rewarding read for anyone wanting to learn more about the operations and battles fought in the coastal areas of the Tar Heel State. Carbone uh, also includes a chapter on wartime efforts at Reconstruction, which is fascinating, and There's also a chapter on African-Americans and their struggle for freedom in coastal North Carolina. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com.
0: Rich and I wanted to say thank you to y'all for the wonderful comments on Facebook this past week about our anniversary. That was very special.
2: And just uh, FYI, But if any of you guys want to put faces to the voices you hear on the podcast, you can find photos we've posted on Facebook this past week and at other times. And then we also put a photo on Twitter this past week. And on Twitter, we're at Podcast Civil War.
0: And then as we wrap things up, we wanted to thank Robert H. from Ohio for his donation this past week. And also a big thank you to Doug C. from Virginia for his gift. We've already enjoyed paging through them. So thank you, Doug.
2: Just a reminder that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the permission of Spiritwood Music. And You can find Midnight on the Water and other delightful songs by uh, Spiritwood Music on both iTunes and Amazon.com. At either site, the best thing to do is probably just search for Spiritwood Music and you'll find them. All right, so I think that's it. Uh, thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next week, we'll cover Robert E. Lee's Cheat Mountain Campaign out in the wilds of Western Virginia. So we hope you'll join us again for that. But until then, take
1: care.
0: Thanks, everyone. Bye. Susquehanna. (laughs) I didn't say it right. Susquehanna. I said (laughs) Susquehanna.
1: You said something
0: that wasn't Susquehanna. I'm so sorry.